episode 14 hello everyone how's it going i hope everyone is well we're talk- we're still talking about aristotle last episode in aristotle and then we're going to go straight back to where we were if you'd like please write me a review on itunes and the best review will be read at the end of this podcast and then if you send me your review you will receive a little gift all the way from greece uh you can please donate through paypal i would greatly appreciate it um, yes, any comments, man, let me know. If you write a comment on my YouTube page, my YouTube channel, yes, I should reply. And um, that's about it. Oh, yeah, and if you're on Spotify, please give me five stars on Spotify. That really helps. Thank you very much. See ya. Bye-bye. Let's talk about some of Aristotle's work. His Poetics book helps its readers understand how commendable tragic plays are put together. We can see by how he approaches tragedies, how his mind works. Much like how a surgeon opens a dead body to to explain to his students what's inside, Aristotle does the same and explains to us that depending on the type of play we are creating, we're going to need this and this to happen. It's one thing to make a heroic epic kind of play it's another to create a comedy and another to create a tragedy his book about tragedy which we still have today tells us that a play must have adventure peripetia in greek it has to have ethical characters that are thoughtful and have a well-developed vocabulary the play itself has to offer a spectacle and it has to have good music But the most important thing is the adventure aspect. The audience has to see the protagonist overcome obstacles. He or she would have to learn something that they didn't know, like a plot twist or something like that. Also, we would have to see them have a crappy time. This this reminds me of The Shawshank Redemption, one of the best films of all time, of course. We see a man being sent to prison, having the worst time of his life. He literally had to crawl through shit to get to freedom. When all this is put together, it gives the audience a cathartic feeling. Catharsi in Greek. One of those amazing Greek words. There's a big debate about what Aristotle meant by saying cathartic. Probably because he doesn't explain it as he does with other words he used throughout his work. It could be cathartic as in a form of psychic calmness. So I just saw Orestes stab his mom and I feel so much better. You know, like I've done it myself without actually having to go through with it. I mean, who hasn't felt that, right? Hi, mom. Um, Goite, Goite, Goite. I don't know how you say his name has said it best greek tragedy quote sorry i should say quote greek tragedy gives our soul peace but only after it has shaken us at our core it leaves us calm and peaceful in front of the mystery of death and divinity end quote another important part of aristotle's poetics is that of imitation he uses, of course, the Greek word mimesis, Plato would have said that this was theatre's greatest 
problem. Simple people watching something inspiring and think they can do the same. But the thing that they've set out to do is out of their reach. So we'd be better off not watching it at all. Aristotle uses the same term as Plato, mimesis, meaning imitation, as I said before. So it's like he is answering to Plato. He tells us that poets see people do things and imitate them. This is an important difference. So the characters in Homer, uh, Euripides, Sophocles, Aeschylus and all those other guys are based on real people. When you are Alexander and your goal is world domination, it would be nice to have a teacher that tells you that Achilles, who he greatly admired, was based on an actual person and you too can be like that person. Alexander loved the Iliad. It has been said that he always had a knife and a copy of the Iliad noted by Aristotle under his pillow. He knew every line by heart, all 15,693 of them, and he stored the copy that was noted by Aristotle in a golden case, which he found in an abandoned by Darius palace. Now let's look at Aristotle's ethical books. First, I should clarify what we mean by ethics. Ethics is the study to live a better life. So, ethics are important because we want to live well. Aristotelian ethics don't say do this and you will live better, but they show you the way. That's why his books on ethics, Epidemian Ethics, Nicomachean Ethics and The Big Ethics, have been characterized by many as timeless. The first ever self-help books. The Nicomachean Ethics were probably named after his son, Nicomachos, because he collected all his lecture notes and created the books we have today. As was done for all his lecture notes, we don't have today the books that were supposed to be read by simple folk like me, much like Plato's books, which is a damn shame because according to Cicero's According to Cicero, Aristotle's dialogues kicked ass. He didn't use those words. He said his words flowed like a river of gold. Uh, what we have today is hard to read. One of the best cures for insomnia, if you're having that kind of trouble. If you want to read about Aristotle, I would recommend modern authors that explain his philosophy. Personally, I have read the Nicomachean Ethics. But with great difficulty, there are some online courses that can help you understand it better. And also, Edith Hall has an amazing book on Aristotle. I've read it twice, probably going to read it a third time. Can't recommend it enough. Great, great book. Edith Hall, yes. And she's also done a few podcasts on, what's that BBC one? About time? Our time? In our time. Yeah, man, what a great woman. Anyway, great lady. These books teach us how to live a good life. To do this, we have to act in the right way for it to become second nature to us. The more we act right, the easier it's going to be for us to keep it going. This is considered the standard for living an ethical life, as was the case for many things that Aristotle talked about. This is going to change nearly 2,000 years later when a lad called Emmanuel Kant in 1785 says it's not enough to identify the correct action and then choosing to do it just for people to say, see, he's living an ethical life, he's an ethical lad. No, 
It has to appear to us that it's the only option, and we choose it because it's the only thing in our mind to do. Now, I did this as an experiment with my seven-year-old daughter. I asked her, which to you is the most well-behaved child? The child who turns the telly off when dad says it's time to turn it off, or the child who turns the telly off when dad says, turn the telly off, and I will give you a chocolate if you do so. The child who did it just because daddy said so, said my lovely little girl. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, kids truly are the best philosophers, right? Something you don't... We don't say enough. I think we all, though, we all know it. I mean, if there's anything troubling you, ask your child, ask your, your cousin or your nephew or anyone, whoever you have, and kids will usually give you the best answer, the most straightforward uh, answer. In Greece, we have a saying. We say, which means, from a child and a crazy person, you learn the truth. And uh, sorry to be a cunt, sorry to sorry to be a cunt and being cunt over, and uh, but just wanted to uh, I wanted to bring him up just because I wanted to show you how long Aristotle was thought of as the main guy of philosophy. That's why often back then when someone said the philosopher, they meant Aristotle. Aristotle didn't think ethical excellence was God sent. Gods don't trouble themselves with the lives of mortals. The reason he wanted an ethical, ethically correct way of living is because that would lead to a happier life. It's also in these books we learn about Aristotle's happy medium. This will be better explained with an example. Let's imagine Aristotle asking Alexander if he thinks a man is considered brave if he doesn't have the balls to attack the enemy and go to battle. No, says Alexander. Okay, well, what about the man who charges first into battle without any help from his own guys? Uh, not really, Alexander would say. He would get chewed up by the enemy. Yes, says Aristotle. So, to be considered truly brave, you'd have to be somewhere in the middle, not scared shitless at the sight of a sword and not dumb enough to run into battle without any help. This is true for everything. Everything, anything, <laughs> would probably be better, that is lacking or anything that is abundant can fuck you up. This lesson, Alexander definitely failed. We know he wasn't really the type of person you'd say was happy sticking to the medium for most things. I mean, not all, obviously. He loved alcohol, proof being Persepolis, but also his demeanor as a conqueror king. I honestly believed he, if he could, he would have conquered the entire planet, enough to reach Pele again. But even in battle, he was more like Brad Pitt's Achilles in Troy, rather than the happy medium explained to us by Aristotle. Now, let's look at Aristotle's books on politics. His goal being that he wants to find the best way to govern a state. There had already been a study of 158 different forms of government. All this was written down, so a book on Sparta, Thebes, Corinth, and so on. Unfortunately, we only have Athens's book left, which is kind of tragic because it's the state we know more about, but still, it's an excellent find. 
he was of the opinion that each city has to have a limit of 100,000 citizens, making it easier to control everything, and that he wants to build up the middle class, so not the very poor or the very rich. Most poor people don't make great citizens, the majority of them are illiterate, and it would give them a chance, for example, through a democratic regime, um, they would give, if they had the chance, they would vote to take all the money from the rich. He sees each state as something natural, and the human race is by nature a political being. So each state is something organic, and its citizens are part of that organism. For the state to function properly, its members have to function properly, properly, <laughs> properly, and its members, of course, being us citizens. For us citizens, Jesus, this is going on a bit, isn't it? For us citizens to work properly, we have to work towards the common good of the state. Or, as the Aristotelian Kennedy said, ask not what um, you can do for your country. No, wait. Ask not what the country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country or something like that. He begins his politics by explaining what he means by citizen. He excludes barbarians, meaning anyone who doesn't speak Greek, and women. Now, this, of course, is one of his biggest mistakes. He thinks women's brains are inferior to men's. I mean, fucking hell, we all make mistakes, of course, but we know Aristotle thought all views should always be open to revision. And in his Nicomachean Ethics, he had said that stability is in some way a good thing, but simply being stuck on an idea just because can only be bad for you. So I truly believe that if someone showed him with scientific facts that he is simply chatting shit, he, um, we would be able to change his mind. It's interesting that he thinks non-Greeks are unable to rule. You would think he would have noticed the Persians. Yes, not. Also, in his politics, he says it's wrong for Greeks to be slaves. Even more so is them being put into slavery by other Greeks. It's something within us, apparently. Today, we'd say it's in our DNA or something like that. Those who are slaves are so by nature. It's good for them to have a master. If they were left to make their own choices, they would end up harming themselves. They need someone to tell them what to do. All of this, Aristotle says, is connected with the climate. Greece has the perfect climate, which is the reason they can't be slaves. According to Eratosthenes, he had said to Alexander, to the Greeks, act like a leader, to the barbarians, like a master. Take care of the former as your friends and family, and the latter as you would feed animals and plants. After he clarifies what he thinks a citizen is, he talks about the main regimes, tyranny, aristocracy, monarchy, and democracy. He also mentions a special regime that might justify Alexander's actions, a super monarchy, which combines various races under one and only king of all, or, ha or as he says, Vasileos ton pandon. If you have someone, for example, with exquisite characteristics, it wouldn't be fair for him to be simply another member of society and not have him rule. He has to be Pan Vasilevs, 
or in or in English you would say um, uh, an absolute monarch, there is not just one opinion about which form of government he prefers. Most people agree that he is a fan of democracy, not the direct democracy of Athens in the 4th century, but something that is closer to today's parliamentary democracy. He was against someone being drawn into office, like it happened in Athens. He preferred someone being voted in. So the elites would rule with the consent of the crowd. He wouldn't have liked commies because he said there where it's not clear who's in charge of public property, no one will take initiative. This might not be the case everywhere. I remember hearing a story somewhere in a, in a show or on radio or somewhere. And uh, apparently someone in, in Japan, if a tile breaks in the, in the train station or something, it'd be fixed by its passengers. So ordinary people would take the stuff from home and sort it out the next day. In Greece, <laughs> this kind of thing doesn't happen. Uh, if something was broken in the train station, nine out of ten people would simply judge for it for not being fixed and one in ten would probably break it a bit more. He pointed out that as more people are involved in some form of asset, the less care they give about it. This I have seen in action. I work in an accountancy office, and always the real estate that is shared between cousins, uncles, brothers, sisters, and that sort of thing, so 5% here, 20% there, and so on, are mostly the abandoned and less cared for real estate. Aristotle believed if you don't work hard for something through sweat, toil, struggle, exertion, and perhaps a wee bit of benevolence, you are not going to appreciate it. About his opinion on the gods, if there is one god, we see in the metaphysics, not the original title of course, Aristotle named it the first philosophy. He did believe there were gods, and more towards monotheism because he believed there is one god who is in charge of them all. But in any case, even if there is one or many, they have no interest in human beings and their affairs. They're above all that. He says, even though gods don't get involved with humans, we as humans, when we think at a higher level, can transform, at least momentarily, to God or at least take part in the divine. So Aristotle would encourage us to be curious and constantly search for things we don't know. Even though it may never end, this is how we can get in touch with God. This Alexander must have liked. We seem always go to the unknown without giving a fuck and getting closer to the divine. One last thing to mention just to show you how long people took what Aristotle said as gospel, because he was a man, he had said that if you took two objects of different weight and let them fall at the, from the same height, the heaviest will fall first. He probably never tested it. It seemed logical, so he just believed it. But it wasn't just him. It took humanity 2,000 years to get it right. Now, to be fair, he wasn't completely wrong, but it's a simplification to the greatest degree. So if you take a, a piece of paper, you don't fold it up or anything, and a pen, and let them fall on the ground, the pen will fall first. Aristotle saw something like this and decided that's it, no need to look into it anymore, the end. But if you were to take the same paper, scrunch it up a bit, 
and do the same experiment, you will see that the objects fall at about the same time. It's going to take 1600 years and Galileo to come along for it to be debunked. He took a cannonball and a bullet and dropped it off a tall tower. It has been said that it was from the Tower of Pisa, though it hasn't been proven. And he noticed they dropped at about the same speed and landed at about the same time. I have a very nice little article in the description if anyone wants to read more about this. Now that's about it about uh, that's about it for Aristotle's writings. Of course there's a bunch more I could talk about, but let's look at his legacy and what happened when he died. It was in 323 when Alexander died. The people in Athens were not loving the Macedonians and anyone from the north like our Stagirian philosopher. They accused Aristotle of not respecting the gods. And he replies, according to Elianos, that he won't let them commit the same crime against philosophy. He is, of course, referring to Socrates. Though Socrates never left Athens and decided to drink the hemlock, as we know, Aristotle moved to Chalkida, where I'm talking to you from today. Uh, his mom had a little house which he decided to move into, and only a year later, he died. He had intestine problems, probably cancer. He was 62 years old. The Christians, several years after his death, tried to shit on his name and said he jumped into the Evripos Narrow because he couldn't explain Chalkida's crazy water. We have a funky phenomena here where the current in a specific location goes up and down simultaneously and every 12 hours they switch so that, so what goes north goes south and the water that goes south goes north of course aristotle wouldn't kill himself so i don't believe that for a second but it's worth saying like a silly little story the christians came up with his last will and testament testament was left to antipater to execute antipater who was regent to philip and then to alexander Antipater and Aristotle were buddies. He ordered for his slaves to be given freedom and a bunch of money, including those who were already free. He thought it would only be fair to give them some cheddar too. He may not uh, have thought of slaves as citizens, but this shows that he is quite liberal for his time. His second wife, Erpilida, was allowed to remarry if she so chooses. He gives he gives her a silver talent and a choice between the house in Chalkida or in Stagira. For his body, he wants it to be buried where Pithyada was, his first wife. Some say they went through a nasty divorce. Others say she simply died young. The latter seems more possible. Imagine hearing Johnny Depp wanting to be buried next to Amber Heard. Just doesn't sound right. The main person of his testament was Nicanoras, who was either Aristotle's adopted son or son of Proxenos and his sister Arimnisti. I talked about them in the last episode. They took care of Aristotle after his parents died. He also says his first daughter, Pithyada, should marry Nicanoras. Nicanoras will die in battle, but Pithyada is not going to stay single for very long. With Aristotle as a dad, no way, right? She remarries two more times. A Spartan and a Athenian doctor. 
she's going to have three sons, one of which will get his grandfather's name. All three will study in the Lyceum. Theophrastos, Aristotle's best mate in his last will and testament in 287, will mention Aristotle, the grandson, and say, make sure he continues his journey in philosophy. Or we would translate as just make sure he continues getting better in philosophy. Something that shows us that for many years he was looking out for his friend's offsprings. People forget about Aristotle for about 200 years, as they did with Plato. Stoicism, Epicureanism and Scepticism become the main philosophical leanings in Rome and Greece. Nietzsche has described this decline in philosophy as the biggest crime in Greek philosophy. He said that they would have stopped at the right moment if they stopped at Aristotle. Nietzsche said it, not me. I like the Stoics and the Epicureans. We shall talk about them at some point. Those who continued Aristotle's teachings, Theophrastos, Evdimos, Clerchos and many others, focus on nature by studying it and keeping a record of any change they encountered. There are many stories about how Aristotle's works were saved. One of them says it was that they were all buried in a cave in Asia Minor for about 200 years, completely forgotten. A loaded Athenian, Apelikondas, was gagging to find them. They were found in Skipsi. He brought them, he bought them, and brought them back to Athens. In 86 BC, Sulla conquered Athens and took the manuscripts to Rome. And in about 50 years from then, Andronikos of Rhodes found them and published what we have today. If this story is true, how lucky are we to still have the books available, right? If the wrong person found them and thought, great, more toilet paper, we would have no idea who Aristotle was. He would have just been just one more teacher Alexander had as a lad, as a youngster. Others say that it was mostly due to the Library of Alexandria, which we are going to talk about in the future as uh, it was birthed during the Hellenistic Age. At a later time, from the 2nd and 6th, 6th century AD, we have many bright minds like Alexander from Aphrodisiada of Caria, who wrote his own notes on Aristotle. He was so into him, he wrote in terms only people who have actually read Aristotle would be able to understand, meaning that he was disregarding contemporary philosophical terms. Themistios from the 4th century AD wrote paraphrases on Aristotle's works, meaning that he wrote them in simple terms for the greater public to understand. Siblikios in the 6th century will write his own notes on Aristotle. The guys I mentioned above helped Aristotle's name stay alive, stay relevant. And of course, yes, his works can be easy understood because, but what is most noteworthy is that they are writing 500 or in some even cases 900 years after he lived. A number of philosophers have lived during that time, each with his or hers own crazy story, but they pick Aristotle. That speaks volumes. Byzantium will study both Aristotle and Plato. They even try to merge their philosophy with theology. This is done, this is done by John of Damascus, Damascus. On a global scale, Ar Aristotelian philosophy will peak in the 9th to 12th century. 
thanks to some amazing Arabs, Averroi, Avicenna, and Al-Farabi. Then there's going to be a number of religious wars known as the Crusades. Here they find many writings the Arabs kept and translate them to Latin. During the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas found them, and again a merging of philosophy with theology took place and created what we know today as scholastic philosophy, or simply scholasticism. This is going to be the base of education in European universities until the 17th century, which ended during the Renaissance as there was a wave of anti-Aristotelianism, even though there was a focus on how science can explain nature, something that is Aristotelian in nature. <laughs> I guess you could say this was probably inevitable and mandatory. It was about time, you know, people were out with the old and in with the new. Aristotle would have probably agreed. It's been a few millennia, you fuckers, you know, he could have said, are you still hung up on me? You know, move on a bit. But how crazy is that, that Aristotle's philosophy stood the test of time and could be adopted by so many cultures, right? From Arabs, Central Europeans to the theocratic Byzantines. This, in that time, had never before happened in history. A single man's philosophy being adopted by so many cultures. This is mainly due to the philosophy being centered towards the natural world. It's not the philosophy of the ether, like Plato's philosophy, which, all right, you know, don't get me wrong, I love to study myself, but I think most clear-headed people would rather study nature. It was until the 17th century that if you wrote or spoke about philosophy, it was guaranteed that you were talking about Aristotle. You were either critiquing him or writing notes on his work. If you're thinking about buying a book on Aristotle, most people will tell you to buy the Nicomachean Ethics. It's apparently his easiest uh, <laughs> book to read, uh, which I don't completely agree with. I would suggest finding current authors who explain his philosophy. If you're, read, if you're set on reading something that was written in ancient Greece, I would recommend Plato, especially his symposium. Then you may move on to Phaedros or Menon, but uh, I would say are his easiest books and then save his Republic for last because that's a bit of a challenge. Then when you read about, then when you read about Aristotle, you will appreciate more where he came from. We might prefer seeing the differences each man's philosophy had but it's wiser to see how they evolved philosophy. So Plato took it to level 10 and Aristotle to level 50. For the winning review, we have ZT200. Great historical podcast is the title. Five stars. Keep up the great work, enlightening and very thought-provoking. Michalis paints a vivid picture and takes you into the life of Alexander and all his accomplishments. Great storyteller, great podcast, bravo so, efcharisto. Thank you very much, ZT200 from the United States. Send me an email at alexandros.cast at gmail.com or if you type in, um, what was my Facebook page? Alexander the Great Podcast on Facebook and I should come up Thank you very much.